This is uh, November 10th, and we're actually we've started uh, part two of uh, our Matthew study. Uh, this is the introduction. It's actually just a review of part one. Um, we'll call it a we'll call it a phase check here. We're gonna we're gonna look back over the past ten chapters and and uh, organize them. Uh, hopefully, it'll help us as we go forward as well. Let's open in prayer. Our Father, our King, we thank you that you have called us each as disciples of Messiah and you have called us to imitate him to walk like him to pray like him to speak like him and to love like him Father we ask that you might uh, remind us of our duty to our master that you might remind us of our responsibility as his disciples and Father we thank you that you have not left us simply with uh, the, a desire or with a motivation but you have given us the empowerment and we thank you for your Holy Spirit that has empowered us to be true disciples of Messiah we, op- we uh, ask that you might visit us this morning as we open your word in Yeshua's name we pray, Amen this is from the Amidah on the righteous, on the devout, on the elders of your people, the family of Israel, on the remnant of their scholars, on the righteous converts, and on ourselves, may your compassion be aroused, Lord our God, and give goodly reward to all who sincerely believe in your name. Put our lot with them forever, and we will not feel ashamed, for we trust in you. Blessed are you, Lord, mainstay and assurance of the righteous. Amen. Uh, well, we've been looking at for the last... Uh, 10 weeks, actually 11 weeks, because we have an intro lesson to part one, uh, is, is, uh, is to look at the book of Matthew in a more historical way, but also to see uh, Yeshua in a way that begins to minimize our own theological bias. We ha- all have theological bias, and it's not wrong to have a bias, but it's very important that we recognize that we have it, and to not let our bias blind us as we uh, read the Word, to try to minimize it so that we can see it more in line, more in line with what God truly intends. This is a difficult thing. It's a very difficult thing. Uh, it doesn't matter what your background is, it's difficult. Uh, what we really want is the truth and not some other people's impressions of the truth. Mine included, yours included. We don't want our own version, we want what is true. Um, Seeing historical Yeshua has no value if there's no relationship. One of the problems that we see as we uh, look at the the traditional way of understanding the Gospels and the book of Matthew is that it's simply a recounting of, uh, of, of, of facts or information which has no basis for, for a lifestyle, for a life. They become theologically important. They create a system of theology. They, cre- they become uh, important for us that we would uh, uh, um, maybe be able to prove his messiahship. But what benefit do we gain from the Gospels in the living of a life of a disciple? We, saw, we talked about last week what it is to be a disciple. In first century Judaism, what is it to be a disciple? What was the most important thing? What was the first thing that we talked about in being a disciple? It's to imitate 
your master, right? To imitate him. In fact, Paul uses that quite a bit. He uses that whole concept of imitating, imitating him. You know, I've talked to people before, and, and in raising the challenge of living a righteous life and, uh, and using him as an example, and oftentimes the answer, and more than once I've gotten this answer, but I'm not Jesus. Uh, I'm sorry. Then you need to relook at what it is to be a disciple. Because it is our duty as disciples to imitate him. What's ironic is that most people who call themselves disciples of Messiah, as we have been looking at already, have no clue what the Gospels truly say. What, do we, what have we been doing? We've been going through these and we've been going to the back in the appendix and putting, putting down references to it's been, it was fulfilled or it's been said. or it, References that were prophetic, right? About Yeshua. Do you know that most people, that's all they ever get out of study of the Gospels in addition to some theological system that they get. They never consider the fact that Yeshua... Yeshua was a uh, was a master that must be obeyed and imitated, and that their responsibility is to follow him. It's it's really remarkable when you think about it. Most people uh, forget the fact that when he came into this world, he emptied himself of his godhood, and so we can imitate him. We can successfully conform ourselves to his image to a much greater degree than most of us understanding and believe that's true now the, 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 uh, be careful because well, we, we also understand that it is by the power of the Holy Spirit we're able to do this but you know something the vast majority of people who would even acknowledge that would make it completely supernatural it was not my participation it's not my job to imitate him somehow I'm going to be conformed somehow in the life that I live somehow in my life by the time I die I'll be more like him It'll be a supernatural thing. And although it is supernatural, let me, let me assure you that if you make no decision to imitate his life, you are not fulfilling the, the responsibility of a true disciple. Disciples are not the leaders. They are the followers. The last step in, 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 in a disciple we talked about, actually we, we just briefly mentioned, is to make other disciples. It is not merely converts that would be a complete misunderstanding of what it is to make a disciple. To make a di- other disciples means that you would, in fact, move in such a way and live in such a way that other people would be drawn to him to be his disciples. Because it is not up to us to make disciples for ourselves, but disciples for him. It's a very uh, remarkable idea that this discipleship is all about relationship. You know, it's all about relationship. We talk about God wants to know us. You know, he wants us to know him. Uh, and, and what we need to re- recognize is that's th- his method is discipleship. That's it. It's to know him. And he uses the metaphor of walking along the way or a road. And uh, I put the Hebrew word halakha, and actually there's many different variations of spelling in the transliteration of English, but halakha, which is driven from the verb to walk. But halakha is a way of walking. That's a way of walking. If you spend any time in, in, in traditional Judaism circles, they'll, they'll, people talk about, well, that's not our halakha here. Or, or what's your halakha for doing such and such? What's your way of living out, living out the truth of Scripture? That's what halakha is. What's your way of living out? Uh, it's the halakha of Yeshua that we're discussing when we study Matthew. I just want to go back to this uh, responsibility of disciples. Yes, ma'am. Disciples. Surely it's to follow Jesus, but 
is there in there the responsibility to help mature, to help Yes, and that, and, but the way that we do it, the way that we do it is to always draw them to him. Uh, we, an example is, how can you be a good disciple if you will not make more disciples for him? Again, we're not talking about simple evangelism. We're talking about dedicating yourself to a relationship with others. Because you have a relationship with the Master. And your relationship with others is not to draw them to you, but to Him. Uh, we can see ministries throughout the ages that have been dedicated to making disciples for men and even women. But not necessarily, although, you know, God is, God is powerful. He's able to work even in, even in poor ministry, isn't he? <laughs> and he still draws people to him. But the point is that, that, that the ministry is not fulfilling those ministries. Those men are not fulfilling the responsibility of a disciple in drawing people to him. How many ministries are named for a man? I'm asking that question because it seems to me that we, we, we bring them to the point of decision and then we sort of walk off and have to see. We're, we, we just touched on it briefly when we talked about Matthew 10 and Matthew 24 or 28, how they relate in calling disciples, making disciples, sending disciples. When we get to chapter 28, we're going to talk in depth. The making of disciples, our job as a disciple, is not conversion. It's not. That's not our job. Our job is to make followers. God is in desperate search for true worshipers. And it's our job to make sure that he has true worshipers. Right? That means not people that are simply lined up and raise their hands and say, I'm in this camp. But people who are truly imitators of Messiah. Let's go to Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Uh, those of you who know, know me know that this is one of my favorite passages. And it is a basis and an understanding for the purpose for the entire Bible. Luke 24, 13. And I'm going to skip through here, as we, but we'll start in verse 13. Now, behold, two of them, these are two disciples. This is the day. This is what's called the road to Emmaus. Two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. They talked together all these things which had happened. This is after, after the death of Yeshua. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Yeshua himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was, uh, was uh, Cleopas answer, answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have, not, and have you not known the things which have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Yeshua of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he, it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who had said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said. But him they did not see, and he, Yeshua, 
said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Messiah to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And when they, then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that we'd have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And they went within to to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, and he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Wait, just a minute. What was one of the responsibilities of the disciple? To learn the way that your master applies scripture. Right? Halakha. The way that he walks. His lifestyle. How he treats tradition. And I mentioned this last week. Here's a tradition. It's a tradition to bless God before you eat. Most people think that's the thing you're supposed to do. You forgot to pray before you eat. That could definitely be a problem for you. Actually, no, it can't. You just haven't blessed God. (laughs) But what we have to recognize is the command is to bless God after we eat. I don't think that many people do that. But Yeshua gave us a tradition, actually it was a tradition that was actually already in place. The Pharisees blessed God before and after. And so what did Yeshua do? He picked up a tradition that the Pharisees had. Oh, oh no, how's that possible? There's actually a lot of traditions that he continues. There's a lot that he counters as well. It is a tradition to pray before. What did they immediately see? Watch. So he takes the bread and he, he says, Hamotzi. He, said, he takes the bread and blesses. He doesn't bless the bread, y'all. <laughs> I'm so sad that when people think that when they thank God, they're blessing the food. Food cannot be blessed. It is, it is the creator of the universe that we are blessing, thanking him, right? Somehow it's a secret little formula to make it acceptable to us so we won't get sick on it. You know, that's nonsense. (laughs) That's just nonsense. But look what happens. Now it came to pass, he sat at the table with them, and he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. How did they recognize him? We know who blesses bread that way. We remember the way that you bless bread. How? Because that was their practice. They had adopted his tradition. It was common. It's very, very important that we be recognized as followers of Messiah and doing the things that he did. Right? Even the traditions that he kept. So, it is a very good thing to bless God before you eat. It's how their eyes were opened. They saw it. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while we talked, while he talked with us on the road, and while, and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them uh, gathering together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Shimon. Wow, what a what a what amazing thing. They had lived three years with him and still didn't get it. How long have you believed and still don't get it? You know, is it not is it not natural for us to think that experience is enough? What was it that made the difference in their lives? Now their eyes were open when they saw his tradition, but what did they immediately believe? What had he been teaching them? All from Moses and all the prophets what the scriptures had said concerning him it's not just information that they heard suddenly their eyes were open and they're like 
Wow, this is what it's been all about. I've lived three years and now I understand it. That's amazing. It's not, it's not impossible to, to, to believe that, that a relationship with Yeshua uh, cannot be achieved by simply knowing the facts. They knew the facts. But it was him finally opening their eyes to the scriptures. Look at this. The, uh, uh, their problem, it says, he says, he says those they were slow, <laughs> slow to believe. Their problem, in verse 25, is they did not believe the Tanakh. How many of your friends don't believe that the, as they would call it, the Old Testament has any bearing for us today other than nice stories? Um, yeah. You know something? Here's the standard. Listen, here's the standard. Beginning at Moses and the prophets, the foundation must be laid. Uh, some people get tired of me saying it, I guess, but uh, you know what I continue to say is, if you cannot believe Moses, then you cannot believe Messiah. Uh, the scriptures are more than just information. Go to Romans chapter 10, verse 16. But they, speaking of, speaking, of, speaking of some of Israel here, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We've heard that a lot probably. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. What's hearing? What is it in Hebrew? Hear and obey. That's right. Shema does not mean to listen. Shema means to heed. Which means, it goes in my ear and I respond. Shema always means respond. Right? It always means respond. So, faith comes by responding? No, faith's got to be supernatural only. Can't have any of our stuff worked in there. Well, I would agree that it's all about God. That's true. Absolutely. It's all about Him. We can do nothing to add to what He's done. But I can promise you, if you do not respond to His call... You don't have a call. That's why it's called a decision. That's right. You've got to decide. You've got to not just decide, step across the line. You've got to keep walking. Right? You've got to walk with Him. I'm not going to talk about losing or gaining salvation. We're talking about what it is to be a disciple. Right? How you get there is another topic completely. But if you are a disciple, you must keep walking, walking with it, right? Uh, let's move on. We have uh, faith comes by hearing, and that is heeding or obeying. Uh, in, in Luke 24, 31, their eyes were opened by Scripture. They knew Him. They had been living with Him. They'd had a relationship in a way with Him. Now they had a different relationship with Him, wasn't it? This is the one. Now they've heard it before. This is the one, and He is alive. This is amazing. This is... He, he is going to bring his kingdom. He is going to bring his kingdom. This is a, it's a big thing. Interesting enough that they saw him, but they really didn't see him. They didn't recognize him. Seeing is not believing, is it? Don't misunderstand that if I see it, I don't believe. You know, they did see him. Their eyes were open. But seeing does not necessarily mean believing. Yeah, you know, so many people think that, uh, you know, unbelievers, well, if God would just show me 
one of those miracles. Damn, that's good. You know, I believe. That's right. And so many believers think, if I had seen all those miracles, I believe. Then, I would never have rejected God. That's right. And yet, you know, the, the people of Israel did see all those fantastic miracles and still they, in many cases, they could not believe. Remember, the miracles are a sign of Messiah in the fact that they raise our attention. We go, hmm, maybe, maybe. That's what he tells John's disciples. The dead are raised. The sick are healed. But what was it that ultimately defined him as Messiah? He was obedient, perfectly obedient. It's remarkable, perfectly obedient. You know, then it's like, wow, this is different. And that, in that, we see that hearing and living Scripture brings believing. This is we oftentimes get it backwards. People say, you know, I'd like to go know God's will. If I could know God's will, then I'll follow Him, right? As if He's some sort of fortune teller, right? Will this be the right decision? Should I take this job? And He's actually revealed His will. Yes do these things and live and a lot of people go oh come on I mean I want to know really what's going to happen not not you know how should I live <laughs> the little things yeah the daily things isn't that great what a great and you know something in the walking of the daily things halakha in the walking out of the daily things believing comes that's actually what it says here in Romans faith comes by heeding shema and heeding by the word of God. If you, if you see your scripture study as a relationship and live it as a relationship and re- a reaction, a response to Messiah's call, it will give you more faith. It just will. It becomes part of life for you. And which brings up a great point. Go to Romans 10.4. I'm going to get out of sequence here because it's right here and you have your Bible already open. For Messiah is the end of... This is, this is uh, my New King James. For Messiah is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. By the way, if you continue to read, you'll immediately see that this is a convoluted discussion. And in fact, he contradicts himself. So, it's better to read it in Greek because the English doesn't convey it correctly. Somebody is giving you a load of theological bunk. They want to tell you that <laughs> that Messiah is the end of the law. What did he say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18? I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill, make them stand up. So what is... The end means goal. That's right. Well, so why didn't they put that in there? Not, not termination point. It's, it's telos, which is the destination. That's right. It's the destination. It's the goal. So, Messiah is the goal of the Torah for righteousness. Wow. Is that a different idea than what you read in English? It's a profoundly different one. If you will not see, we're going to look here and say, if you will not see it, the purpose of Torah is to point to Messiah. It is, in fact, just stone letters. Is there any English translation that uses the word goal? There actually are some that do it better. What's the New American Standard say there? David Stern. David Stearns, yeah. Well, the goal at which the Torah aims is the Messiah. God bless 
us for having given us David Stern. Right. <laughs> is, there, is there another one other than David Stern? Uh, there are some, yes. My American Standard does say in, but there is a twist. Yes, very good, very good. Which one's that? Yes, good, very good. So, I mean, it's not like, it's not, God, this is, I'm not teaching you something new here. This is like, uh, this is a theological, this is a theological thing that's been done here in the translation. We, we should always understand it's okay. We're not bound by men's translations. We can, we can't, it's difficult maybe, but we can actually know what it really says. I like the second half of that. And it says, uh, do not say, office righteousness to everyone who trusts. Yes, and listen to what, it's a quote, isn't it? The man who does these things shall live by them. Now, here's the way that it's usually seen. The man who does these things shall live by them. In other words, you better, you know, if you can't, then so much for that. And that's, that's the theological point. In other words, you can't. So why even try it? Don't even start. That's exactly right. That's the theological reason. But what does it mean? What is that a quote from? Actually, it's a quote from Torah, from Moses. And what does he say? That this is the way to live. That there's life. There's life. Why? Because Messiah is being revealed in it. Uh, we did a study a couple of years ago, and not, not here at Hope of Israel. We did a study on, on uh, uh, Messiah. Uh, in, in Tanakh and we just looked at the book of Genesis it's remarkable not just looking from a prophetic way it's a remarkable way that God has woven the, the theme of redemption and the theme of Messiah as a lifestyle within the very words that some people want to cast off it's remarkable that they want to cast them off because they are they reveal him in powerful ways let's move on uh, Luke chapter 16 Luke 16. Not a place here. Luke 16:31. This is Yeshua speaking. But he said to him, "If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither they will be persuaded." This is the parable. This is the parable of of the one who was uh, um, uh, of of Lazarus and the rich man. Okay, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, and. uh, the rich man says, well, send somebody back to convince my brothers from the dead. And Yeshua says, uh, um, verse 30, and he said, no, Father Abraham, but if only, if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And, but he said to them, speaking of Abraham, said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. What is the hallmark of our belief that, that Yeshua is Messiah? That he was resurrected from the dead. Is it not? This is the greatest miracle. Within the, within the Amidah, that is the proof of God's might. The second, the second benediction of the Amidah is that your might is proven that you resurrect the dead. It is the number one. It's the impossible that God only can do, right? He resurrects the dead. So, even though one comes back from the dead, they will not be persuaded. They have Moses and the prophets. How much of a proof is Moses and the prophets in most people's view? Not much. We have Easter. He rose from the dead. That's what most people would say, right? What is that left Easter? We have Easter. He rose from the dead. That's what most people would say. That's enough. <laughs> this is the hallmark of our belief, right? 
I just wish they'd name us something different. <laughs> or as, as Sam calls it, Ishtar. <laughs> yeah. But regardless, that is the, that's the proof. No, here's, here's, here is the way that they are. Here is the way that they will be persuaded. Obviously, it's the power of God. But the power of God is contained within his word. Moses and the prophets. Not as information, but as relationship. That's a, that's a, that's powerful. That is just so powerful. Um, recently read on, on Jerusalem Post that uh, Shmuley uh, Batea, a oftentimes critic of Michael Brown, uh, debater of Michael Brown, is writing a book entitled Jesus Was a Jew. And in his book, he goes through the teachings of Yeshua and points to the fact that they are not anti-Jewish at all, but that they are, in fact, extremely Jewish, and that Yeshua was not a breaker of the law, but an ultimate upholder of it. So a remarkable thing. Here's an Orthodox Jew who's finally saying, you know, he's not our enemy. He's on our side. Y'all stop taking him away from us. <laughs> uh, we got to get him to go the next step. But <laughs> we got to get him to go the next step. That's a great, important first step, don't you think? Um, go to John chapter 5. Who are these men that stole this truth from us? They weren't in the first century. His disciples were faithful. They turned the world upside down in fulfilling, in one generation, fulfilling the entire world. The whole entire known world knew that their master was Messiah. They didn't believe it. The entire known world. How are these eleven and then a twelfth added? How is it possible that these weak uneducated men could be such great disciples because they had a great master who taught them what it was to be a disciple. And what we discover from history is that their second and third generation that followed dropped the ball. It's difficult for us in recreating, re-understanding what it is to be a disciple and to then pass that on to our children, grandchildren. Understand it's the second and third generation that needs, that's the proof of what we do. Yeah, it was like in the 325 or something when they started yesterday. Yeah, even, even before that they were, they were losing. That's right. John chapter 5 verse 45. She was answering questions and he says this do not think that I shall accuse you to the father there is one who accuses you Moses in whom you trust for if you believed Moses you would believe me for he wrote about me a lot of people like that verse but they don't necessarily like the next verse but if you do not believe his writings how will you believe my words how many people do you know study Leviticus I hope that you do but how many people do you know that study Leviticus? Leviticus is one of the most is one of the most important books for us to understand Messiah. You know, Rick, as you talk, though, my heart really hurts for people who are truly dedicated Christians. They are. Who have, who have been taught that I'm still going back to that scripture that. Uh, that they use the word dead. That's right. Go because they have been taught that. That's right. That there's no value in the Old Testament. Ironically, they've been taught it. They've been taught it, but they don't really believe it. And there's the proof of it. 
you ask, you, you take a very dedicated Christian, evangelical Christian, you set him down, you watch his life, and what you will discover is he keeps it. Not all of it, but he does a good job of imitating Yeshua, even though he claims and says with his mouth he doesn't. But I know so many weak Christians... That's where the danger is. That's right. Uh, it, this is not. To, this is not to pick on a, pick on any group at all. What we need to recognize is we are all be call, being called to a higher level of imitation. Let's move on. Uh, and just, I just have a couple scriptures here. Uh, this is from Romans 10.4. Messiah is the goal of the Torah for righteousness. Uh, and, then, and then actually from uh, Leviticus 18.5. You shall observe my mishpatim, my judgments, and shemar. Keep them. Guard them. My hokot, my statutes. To walk in them. Remember? Halakha, the way that you walk. I am Hashem your God. You shall therefore keep my hokot, statutes, and my judgments, which if a man does... This is the quote from uh, from Romans ten five, which ten four. If which of a man's does will live by them. There's there's life in obedience to God. Life. It is not death. It is not the ministry of death, as some people would 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 understand Second Corinthians chapter three. Living Yeshua's lifestyle is not the lifestyle of death. It is the lifestyle of life. If we obeyed the sex laws of God, sure. there would be no sex plague. Amazing, isn't it? That's not hard to figure out, is it? There's a relationship between sin and sickness sometimes, isn't there? Not always, but sometimes there is a direct result. All right, let's do our review now, real quickly. Yeah, real quickly. Chapter 1. We saw the genealogy of Yeshua and his birth. The focus was his miraculous birth as the promised one. He's Messiah. Right away... Matthew starts with, with the, almost the climax. The point is, this is the king. And he's here. That's why he starts with the genealogy. Remember, the genealogy points to the king. He's a descendant of David. He is son of David. Everywhere, he is son of David. Mashiach ben David. Uh, our Orthodox friends would say, he's, we, we, we are looking for Mashiach ben David. And Mashiach ben Yosef. It just so happens, Yeshua is both. He is son of Joseph and son of David. Thank you very much. Uh, we saw he is Emmanuel, God with us. This is not a name, but a title. Right? And he will be called Emmanuel. He quotes from Isaiah 7.14. If, you, if you're keeping references, uh, that's, that's a quote from 7.14. Chapter 2. We saw the continued presence of Yeshua as prophet, priest, and king. This is the threefold ministry of all who are anointed. The prophet was anointed in Scripture. The priest was anointed in Scripture. And the king was anointed in Scripture. The word anointed from Hebrew is mashach. And we get uh, Mashiach or Messiah from that word. The word anointed and the word Messiah are the same. Okay? So, these three. And what do we see in Yeshua? He is king. He is prophet. Is he not? He's priest. How's he priest? We talked about that. How's he priest? Because he's not from the tribe of Levi. And we read in the mystery uh, revealed in, in the book of Hebrews that he is a priest in a heavenly temple. Going on, and uh, we see here quotes Matthew two five, quotes Micah five one, 
214 quotes Hosea 11.1, 2.17 quotes Jeremiah 31.15, and uh, 2.22 quotes Isaiah 11.1. What's, Ma- what's Matthew doing all this quoting for? The writers of the, uh, of the uh, apostolic scriptures, if we took out all their quotes and their allusions to quotes, we'd be left with about 75% of what's there. They quoted a lot. Uh, chapter 3 we saw the immersion of Yeshua this is not a baptism as some would like to understand a conversion process what did he have to be converted there's a lot of people in trouble well why did he do it well we should do it because he did it but I don't understand why he did it well it's because it's a change of status it's the beginning of a ministry the priest the priests when they would go for their time of service which would happen twice a year they would go for their time of service in the temple itself they would immerse themselves first why they're showing I'm no longer common I'm not exposed to the things outside and I'm going to remain tahor pure clean while I'm here and this is the signal to everyone myself included that that's what happened it was not just washing it had nothing to do with washing it wasn't supernatural it was simply a recognition that something changed and he did it too what happened supernaturally as a result of it we have a revelation to some at least that wow this is Messiah how did that happen a, a, a voice from heaven <laughs> right <laughs> that's amazing but we need to understand immersion to Vila in, in light of this understanding it is the understanding within Judaism not that it is a, some sort of sacrament new, new thing begun for us to, to understand how we join a church right it is in fact the change of status I'm no longer in the kingdom of darkness I'm now a disciple of Messiah. Right? Change of status. In chapter 3, verse 1, he quotes from Isaiah 40, 30, and 3.13, he quotes from Isaiah 10, 1. Uh, chapter 4, we saw this is the temptation of Yeshua. And we see that is attack upon the very person of God. He's trying to get Yeshua to take the shortcuts to Messiahship. Each one of the temptations that the enemy brings to him is a shortcut to be recognized as Messiah. And how does he answer? Each time with words of life, the words of that Moses wrote from us, wrote for us, right from the Torah. He answers from the Torah. Uh, chapter, uh, actually, we had none in chapter four of quotes. Uh, each time that Yeshua answers, he uses the phrase "It is written," not "It was said" or "I say to you," which he does as well. But there he says, "It was written." Chapter five. We saw Yeshua begins his ministry by choosing his Talmudim, his disciples. He chooses some disciples, and as every good master does, he starts to teach them Torah. Let me tell you how to live. Let me tell you how I see those words and how they can be expressed. You know, to hear a commandment's not enough. How do you live it? Right? And he did that. It's exactly what he did. And, his, and, and these three chapters from ch- 5, 6, and 7 are an explanation of how to live. He made it clear to his disciples he was not abolishing the law and the prophets, but rather he was making them stand up. Be seen in their true light. Their purpose. What was their purpose? The goal is Messiah. To show Messiah. Not just so that you would see who he is, so that you would live like him. Because then other people will see you living like him and will be drawn to him. Right? Best evangelism in the world is righteous living. 
chapter 6. We saw not only, this is just a continuation of what's called Sermon on the Mount. He focuses on, he focuses on the externals of religion. Not abolishing the externals of religion. He didn't say don't pray. He said that some people when they pray, they want to be seen. Right? It's not wrong to pray out loud in a group. But he says some people enjoy that and they draw more from it than it really has no purpose. In fact, we, we read the same thing in the Talmud. Don't pray. I told you this. Don't pray in an open, open window where people can see you. Why? Because you might pray for the wrong reason then. Yeah? And Yeshua gives us this. Pray in your closet. You know, pray where he can hear you. You don't have to say it out loud. He can hear you. Uh, so it is, it is important to understand the externals are not wrong, but the focus is also to show that it was not just the visible righteousness in their lives, being obedient to God, but also that such living comes from the heart. Everybody can fake it, but eventually it is revealed what's in the heart. Right? Uh, it has been assumed that chapter 6 is saying it never matters what you do outside as long as your heart's right. It's your motives that matter. That's nonsense because everybody can say, no, no, my motives was for love. I'm sorry that I, you know, that I, that I treated you badly, but deep down inside I was trying to show you how much I love you. Aww. You know, that falls very, that falls very poorly upon our ears, doesn't it, when we've been treated badly, you know? Everybody can claim something different. Their mo- oh, my motives are right. God sees the heart. And what he has said is, question six, is don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. What's inside will come out. Right? By their fruit shall you know, which takes us to chapter seven. It's an important element. We're supposed to be fruit inspectors. Right? It's an important element for us to look at not just our fruit. But also the fruit of others. We're told, don't judge. Well, we're not the condemners, that's true. But we are supposed to be fruit inspectors. We're supposed to look at the fruit of the people that we want to follow. Right? Are they living like Yeshua lived? Then I need to ask that question, right? And eventually, yes, it will be borne out. What we also saw is a very troubling idea. And that is that a lot of people are going to say, I did all these great things for you, Lord. And he's going to say, I never knew you. Who are you? How does he know us? Did he know his disciples? The twelve? He knew them. He knew them. They followed him. They followed him. Well, at least eleven did, right? Yeah. But he knew them. Even the twelve. He knew it, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, we, want to, we, we want to be known by him. We were told that the kingdom was made of the wise. Do you remember this? wise man builds his house upon a rock the foolish man builds his house upon the sand what is the parable about? what's your foundation? foundation? but who's the wise man? he tells us what's the punchline? amen you see how many times have we taught our children the end of the song (laughs) the end of the song is the one who hears and does that's the wise man who's building on a firm foundation that's exactly right. Halakha, the way to walk. Um, chapter 8. In the miracles of chapter 8 and 9, we saw that they are not simply signs and wonders, specifically chosen for what they, were, they meant. Understand, I'm not ever negating the miracles as an important pointing to Messiah. 
the miracles were extremely important. What we need to understand is the miracles are not enough in and of themselves. Because Deuteronomy chapter 13 teaches us the opposite. If someone comes and there are miracles, they have dreams and things happen like they say, or whatever, but they lead you away from God, they are a false prophet. And what some people have said about our master, who claim to follow our master, would indicate he's a false prophet. He's led the people of Israel away, away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I think not. If he was, he was a false prophet and should have been stoned. No, he did not. In fact, what he did was the opposite. He made God's words stand up and be relevant for our lives. That's powerful. He is, he is the only prophet. He, in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, he's the prophet like Moses. Right? Greater than Moses. Uh, chapter 9. Excuse me, chapter 8, we had uh, 8, 16 as a reference to Isaiah 53, 1. Uh, and, and, I, uh, and we talked a little bit about this idea of Tameh and Tahor, what's commonly translated clean or unclean. It's going to continue to play a role as we go through this book uh, in our understanding. Chapter 9, we saw him healing and forgiving sin. Forgiving sin is a very important aspect of this whole thing and a lot of people try and make this connection and sin and, and sickness are somehow uh, intertwined and there is a relationship but they're missing the point of all this otherwise and the point was remember so that we could hear the words your sins are forgiven because who can forgive sin only the one who has been offended that's right and the man had not sinned against Yeshua as a, as, a, you know, as a man sinning against another man. He had, in fact, offended God. His sins were forgiven. It's a powerful statement. Powerful statement that he is God with us. Um, in, uh, in chapter, there were, there were no references, I don't think, to uh, um, the prophets in that, in that chapter. Uh, chapter 9. Oh, actually, let me go back just a second here. He says also we saw this parable. Remember the parable of the uh, of the uh, of the garment that's being patched, or the or the new uh, and old wineskins. And we saw the focus, the discussion was about disciples. It wasn't a discussion about some new theology. It was a discussion of disciples. And what we recognized was he specifically chose new wineskins, new kinds of disciples, blank paper on which to write on. What kind of blank paper? Completely uneducated. Somewhat buffoons at times, it appears. And what do they end up being called? The wisest of wise. How is it that these, these nothings could be so wise and turn the entire world on its head in a single generation? It is because his teachings were that kind of teaching. They were faithful disciples and they did what he told them to do. What a, I mean, if we would be faithful disciples, what would happen in our generation? Chapter 10. He intends that his disciples to be imitators of him, to speak what he spoke, to act like he acted, to pray like he prayed. He expected to preach his kingdom message the same as he did. He was sent from the Father, and so he sends out his disciples. Sent ones. They become apostles. Their purpose is to do what he did. They're not different from us. They are our foundation. He's the chief cornerstone. But we are building upon that foundation. We are the same. We must do what he did. We must imitate. We must go like he, was, like he went. We must do what he did. 
We must preach what he preached. What is the kingdom message? We've been seeing all the way through. What's the kingdom message? We're going to close with this. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the kingdom message. Now we're going to go into nine more chapters. Don't forget the connection to Tanakh. Matthew wants to make this point. It is more than information about Messiah. It is all about relationship. It is walking with him. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you that you have given us Messiah. That he is not just uh, another master like all the other good masters and sages of Israel. But Father, he is more than just a sage of Israel. That he is the very embodiment of your person. That he is the very uh, king of the universe. That he is the very Messiah to which we owe our allegiance. Father, we thank you that you have called us to be your subjects. And we praise you and look forward to that day when we can see Yeshua reigning from his throne in Jerusalem. In Yeshua's name, Amen.